0: Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. My name is Danny Lazell, your host for Season 4, and in this week's episode, I sat down with the Azo Life Sciences team to discuss the strategies behind launching the site and taking the annual visitors from zero to one million in just under three years. Let me introduce Emily Henderson, Head Editor of Azo Life Sciences, Ben Stibbs-Eaton, the Content Marketing Manager for our SEO team, and Sara Lopez-Segura, our Graphic Design and Social Media Coordinator. Uh, My name is Danny. I'm the Virtual Events Manager, and I have the pleasure of putting the questions to our phenomenal panel today. Our intention for the next sort of 30, 40 minutes is to offer some of the principles behind the the success of the ASO Life Sciences site, not so that we can show off about the success, but so that we can share the ideas and the strategies behind that success in order to get you thinking about your own strategy. So hopefully we'll be able to offer you some ideas and takeaways that you can go and implement in your own marketing over the next 30 or 40 minutes. To start with though, we wanna try and set some context and we're gonna bring in Emily straight away who is the brains behind the operation. Emily, can we start off with just a little bit about what Azo Life Sciences actually is?
1: Yeah, of course. So it's um, part of our Azo Network brand. So it's the 11th website that we built. And it's a life sciences site really targeted at life sciences, professionals, academics and researchers, as well as people in industry. But it's kind of a site where people can keep up to date the latest news, information, interviews, in-depth article pieces, as well as equipment and technology that's breaking through the sector. Um, it's quite site sector specific with 10 hubs covering... The biggest topics in the life sciences sector, ranging from things like proteomics and the omics industry to drug discovery to agriculture um, and bioinformatics. It's a really quite a varied sector. But yeah,
0: that would be the sort of the the user side of, of the site. And then for clients, it's the sort of the content marketing platform where people want to put their latest work, their latest research in front of the audience within those segments. We set it up just over three or it just under three years ago. Why did we set it up? To fill the gaps, to try and bring something new?
1: Yeah, 100 to fill the gap. I think the life sciences sector as a whole has seen such a transformation before the COVID pandemic, but especially in the COVID pandemic. And it's probably one of the fastest growing sectors that we're seeing across the world. I mean, in 2020 alone, it was worth, valued at about £280 billion. Um, so it's a really fast growing sector, a really fast evolving. There's so much new technology being brought about. We thought there's a really big gap in the market to really share information and really Broadcast these like new breakthroughs, especially on the commercial side of it, to a big audience that work in industry. And could you utilise this technology for the greater good? And we also kind of wanted to continue as our network's mission of sharing science stories with people that can really make a difference.
0: So hopefully that sets a little context as to why the the site was set up was just under just under three years ago. Ben, I want to bring you in from the start. So if we look at the SEO uh, side of things, at what point were were you and the SEO team involved with sort of the planning and the setting up of the site? So
2: we were involved from the outset. The main goal of the project from our point of view was to build a site from the ground up using the best SEO principles while targeting that growing niche in the life sciences sector that Emily just talked about. We saw it as an incredible opportunity to service that growing sector with a dedicated content hub. So it was built to replicate the success of our sister site, News Medical. So that served as a sort of optimistic benchmark for the project at large. News Medical being a behemoth in the medical news sector. We wanted to replicate the same, but for life sciences. So the approach was basically to create quality content that's relevant, informative, and engaging to users interested in that specific sector. The main focus really was on user experience to best meet the EAT search engine principles. I could go into the weeds of search metrics and things like Core Web Vitals, but some of the most novel things we did to make Asol Life Sciences a success was focus on UX and content. So I'll be talking about that mostly throughout the course of the webinar. One of those like main novelties that we focused on was uh, segmenting the market into those topical brackets that, again, Emily was talking about before to create individual sector-specific hubs. So this gave us a strong basis to generate fully optimized content that was engaging to users in really specific mm-hmm. niches. And given the nature of those topics, we made sure that we were only using expert writers, uh, credible sources to tackle the topics, while also platforming those writers to build trust with the audience and establish some real authority in the space. So for users, there's a complete traceability on where all the information is coming from. We thought that all of that, coupled with the basics of you know have a clear sitemap, optimize your meta, uh, strong web titles, and so on, that would put us in the best possible position.
0: Yeah, so how would those strategies, because obviously we set this up from scratch, so how would those strategies differ if you were working with a client and they wanted to to redesign their existing site, whether that be just the sort of user interface, maybe they've had a look at the site map and it's a bit of a mess It's links going all over the place, lots of people have passed it on to another person and now someone's been left to sort of deal with it. In those scenarios, I mean, I imagine you've experienced scenarios like that before. How would your approach to the SEO side of things differ now, if we were working with an existing site as opposed to a brand new one. The clean slate
2: approach is always really appealing. As like you said, a lot of the time it falls to marketing professionals and it's kind of been passed from pillar to post on what we're actually going to be doing when we're setting up a new site or working on our existing site that may be in a bit of a shambolic state. Whether you go for a, a rebrand, full redesign or a from the ground up, start from scratch, there are pros and cons to each approach. If you go from scratch, it effectively means going from a standing start and then whether or not that standing start is ahead or behind of where you might have found yourself if you just went with a redesign, that all depends on the strength of your existing domain. So a unique work in our specific situation was to some degree, we were competing with News Medical. As I said, it's one of the the largest hubs of medical news content worldwide. And although we were trying to target a different niche, there were overlaps. So as far as rankings were going, there were occasions where we were finding the established brand of News Medical was almost too difficult to compete with. You need to basically weigh up things like that whenever you're going to be going on to build a new site or working on your own one. It's a running gag that in SEO, the answer is always it depends. But some of the key takeaways you you can take from this, I suppose, are High-quality content matters absolutely most. User experience, that underlies some of the most important search metrics. Your existing domain authority, it can give you a leg up in a rebranding effort. But then if you aren't to redesign effectively, if you were to implement redirect incorrectly, you know, it can lead to significant errors. We had similar issues when we did it, so it's not always smooth sailing when you go from one to another. And again, a further answer to that would be, you know, always consult with the experts and all your relevant stakeholders before you just decide to hit refresh.
0: Yeah, I, I want to come back to that in a second. But Emily, just to, just in case in the audience isn't aware about News Medical and what the difference was. Well, obviously, News Medical is part of the Azo network. It's different in the fact that it doesn't begin with AZ or the A to Z of, but it is part of the, of the core network. How does it differ from Azo Life Sciences and what was the point of setting up a new site?
1: Yeah, so News Medical itself has been quite a forefront of, like what Ben was saying, it's a massive player in the healthcare field, the medical field, the life sciences field for the past, 20 years now it's got a bit live for. Predominantly, it was a 50-50 split between life sciences content and health content. But as the COVID-19 pandemic kind of spiralled, we felt like there was a really need to separate the two domains from each other, to separate this health content, this life sciences content. So News Medical is now a forefront of the health medical and pre-clinical research that we focus on. So we've still got life sciences content on News Medical. But we've kind of made a really clear definition between the fact that News Med only focuses on overlapping realms within the medical space of so preclinical research, animal studies, drug discovery at the early phase in the clinical trial phase, whereas life sciences research covers it anything post clinical, so these drugs that have been released, as well as general life science topics like agriculture and biotechnology.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Emily. Um, but I just want to dig a bit deeper into some of the stuff you are just talking about. So if there's anyone listening, they've got a site then they're, they're not particularly happy with. Their, their traffic's low. They want to do things to increase traffic. Are we saying that although the inkling can be to sort of get rid and start from scratch, you really want to see what you're ranking for currently, see what authority you've got on certain pieces and go through that before sort of the back end's as important as what their end user and customers are going to be seeing?
2: Yeah, for sure. You do need to make sure that you're not going to be gutting a site that does actually have some hidden value to it. It depends what metrics you're using to determine success. So for some people, like for me going into a a new client relationship, I'm looking predominantly at rankings first because as a content creator and a written content creator, the main thing I'm trying to do is increase the visibility of client sites for specific search terms. For some other people, it's it's traffic, it's engagement. There's various obviously metrics that you can go by. And sometimes, if people aren't hitting specific successes, they can overlook other successes and they can, you know, move too quickly to to reset when they should really consider just going for a rebrand and working with what they've got.
0: I wish we'd had this conversation many years so many moons ago in a previous job. <laughs> I had the. Like many marketers do, they get handed a website they're not particularly happy with. They want to do stuff to sort of increase the traffic, increase the conversions. And all my thought was on the user interface, the user experience, but less so about what we were already ranking pretty well for. So I basically gutted it and started again. <laughs> and then within the first sort of six-month period, our traffic was way down. And then it was only after speaking to specialists like yourself that I realized what, we, what we'd done and the mistakes we made. So I learned that the hard way uh, <laughs> way back. So... So yeah, what you say, definitely speak to someone about it if you're not sort of specialist in those areas.
2: Yeah, sure. But I mean, it's a common thing that anytime that you make changes, positives and negatives are going to occur. Like it wasn't all, as I alluded to before, it's not all smooth sailing when we transitioned to Azo Life Sciences. When we launched this, we did have a problem off the back of a core algorithm update that Google released, which was basically trying to target the veracity of medical news. So it was kind of dovetailed with the COVID pandemic. It was effectively targeting anything that was even peripherally related to COVID. And we don't actually publish any coronavirus related content on the life sciences platform. But because it was, as I said, tangentially related, we still had to deal with the fact that we were going to be receiving hits and kind of secondary penalties. I guess we weren't penalized particularly strictly, but we did notice a knock on effect. And the only way that you can deal with that is stay up to date with the latest news that Google's putting out, trying to deliver the best quality content possible. But you also need to be reactive and know what certain signs are pointing towards. If you see a massive dip in your traffic, you need to then be able to analyze that, diagnose the problem, and then quickly and effectively
0: implement a solution. So, if people are seeing a massive dive in traffic, is the for, is the sort of the initial thought is that there's been an algorithm check that you weren't aware of, or? Does it tend to be that or does it tend to be something something else? It can be all sorts, to be honest. Obviously, if it's organic
2: traffic, the f- one of the first things I'll look at is the rankings. So obviously the difference between overall traffic being your overall traffic can be coming from emails that you're sending out. It could be coming from social media. It could be coming direct. If you're a bit of a destination for users to be going to, type in your URL indirectly. If it's organic traffic that you've seen a big dip in, What I'd first look at is to see if there's any significant rankings changes. If any rankings have dropped off and those rankings are particularly highly searched, volumes of searches per month, that's where I'd look first. And then secondarily, I'd probably look to see if there were any algorithm updates.
0: And you keep up to date with those just by f- following the, any yeah. particular resources that you, that you yeah. recommend? the core ones, definitely. They're, Google, for all their faults, they are relatively
2: transparent about the big updates, and they do give you forewarnings. But they are also making little micro-adjustments to the algorithm every single day. So you'll see fluctuation routinely nowadays. It's just part of the course. Gone are the days when you used to have a concrete... Position one ranking all the time. If it's a good piece of content, even if it's the best piece of content, you will probably see it flicker in between positions one to three. It's just the
0: nature of how uh, Flux works nowadays. Just on this subject, I think we'll talk a bit more about AI enhancements in, in a little bit because I know people will be interested to hear what, y- what you guys have got to say on that. But if we were to go back to the strategy, the SEO strategy at the various stages of the last three years, how did it differ from pre launch, three months, six months, one year, et cetera?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the strategy, despite the hiccup of obviously we, we had a plan in place, we launched and then very shortly afterwards, the whole world went into lockdown and everybody only wanted to talk about one particular topic. So the concept of creating a life sciences hub that was a destination for the main location for high quality life sciences news and content that hasn't changed across the entire lifespan of the site so far we've had that from conception through to today and we're maintaining that the way it changed predominantly was in how we were reacting to what we were seeing was going on with the traffic throughout the course of the, the pandemic and in relation to that that algorithm change that i mentioned which is the medical medical news update the main thing was making sure that we could find out where there were any problems that we'd maybe carried over and one of the things that we did figure out was uh, our redirects weren't necessarily implemented to the best they could be at the start. Very quickly after we resolved that problem, we saw that change begin to um, to improve. The traffic was much improved. And although it we did see a dip, again, it's kind of half of the course with uh, these projects. You do find that it's not always up and to the right. Things are going to be, you know, up and down along the way. So, Again, a bit of a an non-answer. It's The strategy never changed because the goal was always to create a strong content hub. And that's what we've done. But you do have to be a, a mix of proactive and reactive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when Emily's moaning at you because traffic's dropped down, it's blaming yeah. SEO for it. You've just got to sort of be like, look, yeah, Emily. Yeah, she's, she's hard to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> and a good question is coming in. So this one's asking, how much does the visual appearance of SEO content contribute to its success? or lack thereof. For example, blog posts could perform great in SEO rankings, but it could be visually uninteresting, hard to skim, etc. How important is it to optimise the visuals and overall design? I would say very important because half the battle is getting people to the site, but if you get them to the site and they're not going to engage with that particular piece, it sort of becomes irrelevant. Sorry, I know you'll have some thoughts on this because you're our master at putting... Everything and everything into into all of our articles and blog posts. So maybe Ben first from an SEO standpoint, and then Sarah yeah. give some examples of of some of the stuff that we do. Yeah,
2: sure. Well, seeing as Sarah's going to talk about the actual implementing it, I'll talk more about the data side of it. What you find is that the user experience metrics are things like time on page, conversion rate, and these are all things which do directly or indirectly impact where you're going to be ranking in the results pages you got to remember is that google is effectively trying to serve the customer it's not trying to serve you it's not trying to make sure that your site is ranking highly it's trying to give people the information that they're looking for and it is ranking your content based on over a thousand different metrics and some of these ones which directly relate to user experience factor into where you're going to rank so it's kind of a constant process of if people are actually visiting your pages they are engaging with your pages it's going to increase your rankings, and it's kind of a snake eating its head. It's which one starts first. It's a whole process that's constantly revolving.
0: Yeah. And Sarah, uh, we were talking about this, or we talk about this all the time because we're putting lots of different types of additional content within written within written stuff. What, what are your sort of thoughts on this?
3: Yeah, as Ben has mentioned previously, user experience it is a factor for Google to give a domain certain strength. And also, finally, I get the chance to drop my cool fact. <laughs> it's It's been the I don't know if you're aware of the leak of the algorithm ranking in Yandex. Yandex is the fourth biggest search engine at the moment currently, and all their code and all the factors they use to rank different content has been have been leaked. This is not Google's algorithm, but the general consensus is it's going to be it's either mirroring Google or very very similar, so it is likely that Google uses similar factors, and the fact that an article or anything has a short video or a multimedia, and it is a factor for ranking. So it will give you more points to appear higher. So the more short videos it has, uh, links to platforms like TikTok or Instagram Reels or YouTube could make that video pop up and hence your article. All of these different elements are taken into consideration. So the more multimedia and the more engaging it becomes, not only is going to help you rank higher, but also going to help the reader stay longer in the page, which is per se another factor to rank higher so it's it's not going to do any harm at all
0: another thing that we like to do is which people can definitely try for themselves is to have the option to if you're using video content repurposing it for written content have the option to read listen to the audio or or watch video because i imagine well let's just go sorry what do you prefer to do
3: well i it depends because not do you consume? as <laughs> a consumer not every User even if it's the same person will have same needs at the same time so for example if I'm looking for a quick fix or something I want to do in after effects or something I'd rather just read it have it in 10 seconds and fix it and go back to my work but sometimes I would just look into okay how do I do this bigger project and then I'd rather just sit and watch a video and learn and set up some time to inform myself that way so having the option to consume your content in as many different formats as possible it, again it's just only going to help
1: you
0: yeah emily are you a reader a listener a watcher
1: i'm definitely a reader unfortunately i think it comes part and parcel with the fact that i work in editing that i enjoy reading but yeah no definitely a reader
0: be a slow job if you didn't enjoy reading (laughs) (laughs) ben are you a reader as well yeah a bit of a mix though if it depends what it is i'm
2: looking for obviously if i'm trying to figure out how to put a shelf up at home i don't really get much from an article so i tend to use youtube for that
0: yeah. I guess it like, sorry, I think you're just touching. It. it depends on the situation of the consumer. If you're on the train and you want to, you probably in the morning, at least you probably just want to put your headphones in and listen to something rather than read a big, long journal, or a big article, different times there you sat at your desk, you've got more time to read it, watching video. If you're short on time, if you watch videos, something I do all the time is I watch videos on like 1.5 speed or two speed. Just because you can get through it quicker and you get all the keep the main points out of it. Not that I'm encouraging people to turn us up to two speed, because, <laughs> um, which you can do if you're watching on demand, by the way, in the future. I guess it just depends on giving people the options so that in those different situations, people can consume and get your content at what's easiest for them. Just as a quick sidebar, I've got no interest in hearing myself at two times speed <laughs>
3: <laughs> or at all, personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, whenever I've listened to myself back, at seems it just goes very high pitched. Yeah, it's it's not not a great look, but <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll test it out later. Um, let's let's talk a bit about AI enhancements because there's a lot in the news about ChatGPT. The people have been using. It. I know we've all experimented with it in different ways. Shall we? Sorry, I think you've got some some thoughts on it. Can people? Is it beneficial to people? Can people use it in a positive way? What, what just? What are your thoughts on it? <laughs>
3: I am the more doomy and gloomy version <laughs> of the four here. I'll start saying that I use ChatGPT and it helps me a lot, especially not being a native English speaker. It helps me a lot. Like, is this expression correct? Or can you rewrite this for me? And just say it just said in a different way. As a tool to get ideas and get your thoughts going, it's great. But I do have more facts. And I've been reading recently on the about the Bing AI-powered chat box, where you can ask it anything. And I've been reading things where you just they would ask to summarize a document like uh, it, I think it was a profit profit statement from the gap and they would just make numbers completely with total astounding confidence <laughs> numbers that don't appear in that document at all and they would just tell them to use it uh, I would just say yes no to, to be careful and make sure that that data is actual, actually fact- factual you can use it to gather ideas and to Again, get your thoughts flowing, but I would be a bit wary yet to take its
2: word for fact. This is one thing that I'm finding really interesting about it is when it does create these factual inaccuracies, where does that come from? Like, what is it in the programming that makes it do that incorrectly. So I've used ChatGPT to help with brainstorming ideas, a little bit of research, but to be honest, I've moved on to a different resource for that. I find ChatGPT is almost like a virtual assistant. Apparently there's no budget for me to have an assistant of my my own, (laughs) so I have to turn to the robots to help me out. So it is useful to help organize my thoughts and do a little bit of research. As I said, I've moved on to another search engine called Perplexity to help me actually do my research, purely because that is much more reliable in terms of it's uh, referencing. Whereas with ChatGPT, even if you prompt it to use credible sources and to cite those sources, I think it's less than 50% of the time that the reference is actually correct. Links more often than not are broken. And then when you go in to search these references, finding them is a nightmare. I've searched some of the authors and they don't exist. So I don't know. I honestly, I'm a bit
0: perplexed as to where this information comes from. Yeah, because it's all pre-2000, well, it's loaded with information up to 2001, isn't it? So
1: 21,
0: 21 I think, yeah. Okay. ChatGPT,
3: Bing yeah. is supposed to be con- mm. real-time.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, that's one of the things that I think is a bit of a misconception, is people assume ChatGPT has access to the internet, whereas it doesn't. It has access no. to a repository of information that was, you know, it ceased collating data in 2021. So if you ask it something that's more topical, it will answer relatively confidently but using the data from, you know,
0: pre-2021. I mean, I tried it out by applying for a job with Emily that I am in no way qualified for <laughs> to see if it could write my application for me. And Emily wasn't impressed. It got thrown out pretty quickly. Isn't that right, Emily?
1: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think working on like, especially in like the medical life sciences kind of sector with the pre-2021 problem, trying to find trending topics and news stories, for example, makes it rather difficult. So it's quite good for us for a, a long-standing piece of content, just like title ideas and like, suggestions of maybe how we can word things differently but actual content and like news stories it's it's not there for, at the minute in that kind of aspect
0: yeah and again obviously when you're making fact checking everything it's not the best if you can't trust the information that's in there you can't find resources to back up what it's giving you out i think <laughs> it's going to obviously get better but for now yeah we would be cautious mm-hmm. about it That site you just mentioned, Ben, I've just put in the chat. So if anyone does want to check that out, called Perplexity. It's essentially just a search engine that helps you with research.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is a search engine, except what it will do is it's contextual searches and it uses your search session as a thread. So if you type in any search, I won't use an example, but it'll give you a very brief summary. Instead of a list of links that Google will give you, it'll give you an actual summary and then it will reference the information it gives in that summary with say up to 5 results those results are just pulled from google so it, it again i found the information to be really accurate especially when i'm writing scientific documents it is pulling through sources from more credible sources rather than just wikipedia so that's useful but then when you the, the real strength in it is that if you then type in a follow up search it remembers the context of your your previous prompt. So anything that you type in subsequently all falls under one particular topic and subject. Again, I tend to be writing relatively long form blog articles for clients. So if I need to familiarize myself with a challenging subject and I need to be looking at various aspects that I'm going to be going through throughout the discussion phase of the blog, it's
0: invaluable. It's really, really useful. Right. It's going to be an interesting thing to monitor and obviously we'll keep keep on top of it i know each of us have have had a go each of us are following the news so as and when we've got updates we'll of course share them with everybody via the newsletter or, or our social channels emily if we move on to a bit more about the actual con the strategy behind the content itself so at the beginning what was your approach to developing content strategy particularly the tra- uh, content that drives traffic to the site
1: yeah i think starting with the content strategy i think the main thing to have in your mindset is a long-term, it's got to be very clear, it's got to be a long-term strategy. I don't think you can go into build a new website or rebranding a new website necessarily this idea here exit. I know we were talking in discussions leading up to the webinar about like a set number of views you want to achieve to define success. I think that's really difficult. I think having a clear mindset and like goals of like milestones you want to achieve is important. It keeps So you're constantly referring back and using your data to track your progress, and that's important. But don't be disheartened if practices need to change, your content strategy needs to change. Because it does evolve, like the field of science evolves very rapidly. So I think constantly coming back to the initial ideas that you set, maybe setting yourself some like OKRs or KPIs, like kind of like numerical indicators is important. But I think really long-term strategy, I think you see success built up over time. So as your reputation in the space, especially in Google's eyes, and you becoming a recognized source of information, as that increases, your content's gonna become more and more visible anyway. So I think really picking out good content, I think like Ben's touching it so much, I think it's so important is having a clear your information it's content has got to be good it's got to be reps. it's got to be coming from good authors that are known in their background making sure it's engaging it's unique I like mixing content up I think sometimes like people always get given like content as question titles I think having guides is really important mixing up the way that you phrase things because some people might not necessarily search that way and might not search in that like, question terminology so I think mixing it up distributing it i think having a good distribution strategy or like a good different channels i know sarah's like massively on social media and things like that. it's really like on the ball when, when we publish new content to spread it across these channels but you can engage different audiences that way so i don't think when you create your content you don't always rely on linkedin i know it's very good for like industry professionals but if you're trying to target more than one audience why don't you turn to things like instagram where have a lot of research academics i know sarah mentioned on probably a couple of webinars ago about the importance of using TikTok and how that's coming up and, like, with scientists in particular. I think using different platforms, as Ben touched upon, having SEO best practices implemented from the start and your content strategy is really important. And, yeah, just expect it to change as your audience grows. You are going to come across new obstacles and be prepared for that and come full circle and just evaluate as you go.
0: So how do you go about organising That content on a site so that it's easy. If I'm in a particular area of life sciences, I might not be interested in 80% of what's on the site. How do we organize it so we can find the most relevant information for for individual people?
1: Yeah, 100%. So Ben touched on it, like user experience is massive at the minute. I think when we launched ASA Life Sciences, we very much had that in the forefront of our mind. How can people navigate a life sciences site that covers so many varieties of things? Like, no one that's come on as an analytical chemist, for example probably doesn't want to read about soil health (laughs) for after. It's just the way it is. Um, But I think we massively implemented something called a mega menu. So it's basically like a big drop-down menu where the hub pages appear so they can click directly onto a landing page where it's got the latest news, articles, research, interviews, and products all in one space. Just makes the website a lot more navigable. I'm going to use that new word. Um, I Last week, everyone. And it's broken down to the main segments. So say if you're looking specifically at equipment, you're in the right place and there's more equipment that pops up. We have like, what if you're interested in this? Making sure, I think like a lot of things, when you upload new content, just don't put in call to action buttons and link to code with no real purpose for it. Because the reader, once... I always think like, if you've got a reader on your website that doesn't interact and doesn't like the content, you probably won't get them to return again. So I think... Pushing them to keep on your website with irrelevant content is not probably worth doing it. I think if you can't find a relevant page for them to move on to, don't add one for the sake of it. So I think like having call to action codes that link through like so that if you're interested in this, you probably will be interested and in keep them in the same segment of the site it's really important. And yet, yeah, offer pages for the content. Like I know Ben touched on it, but I know with the EAT, having the content that's wrote in these hub pages with your freelancers or your team of internal writers that have got a relevant background in it is really important as well.
0: Yeah, because I believe there's an extra E now uh, in front of EAT, so E-E-A-T, which is for... Experience. Experience, yes. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things that we already had addressed way back was these speaker bios could perhaps talk a little bit about that ben emily whoever's best to answer that one
1: so we have a team of over about 100 freelancers coming from all kinds of various backgrounds from probably student level all the way up to like phd work in industry work at some really big companies and what we did when we launched the thing cuz eat was so important at the time that we took everyone with a phd that had a qualified background in the 10 hub pages that we were creating We made a scientific review board where all the content was sent through, then they proofread it, they checked it, they made sure it's error free. And it kind of gave us that extra approval of stamp, like the extra stamp in our eyes that we need to know that, okay, this content's good because not only have we had it written by a freelancer that's qualified, we've had it checked over by someone that works in that kind of field as well. So it had like two kind of eyes and mine, but they kind of gave us that extra stamp of knowing that. So we built two sides to the author profile. So we have a scientific review board as well as our freelancers that write the content itself as well.
0: So, Ben, how do those two E's differ? So how does expertise differ from experience? Do they not crop fall into the same bucket?
2: It's a funny one because it is relatively new. So the jury is still out about what that effectively means, that new one experience. A lot of people are using it in the context of the AI conversation. So the idea is that if it's a a robot generating this text that can never really demonstrate experience in a particular field. You see some interesting things that are coming out from Google at the moment where people are saying that if you were to put your content out and say this was generated by ChatGPT and you were fully honest about it, because that by default can't demonstrate experience in a field, it's automatically a red flag, even if the content is the highest possible quality which is, again, the most important metric. So another confusing thing that Google have put out is saying that although artificially generated content probably does contravene a lot of the fair use policies of Google, what is prioritized always is quality the quality content that best serves the users. So it's a bit of a mixed bag as to is using ChatGPT and AI, does that automatically contravene it if you use it in any way? Or can you use it in certain aspects, provided it's just to inform and then... Or, you know, in the worst case scenario, could you use AI to fully generate content, put that on your site verbatim, and then dress it up as if it was written by one of these users? It's a bit of a minefield as to what that actually means. I think expertise in the the original EAT, that factors more into your domain and the existing brand authority of your site experience. I think we're going to understand more about what that means going forward. But I believe we were already on the right front front foot with this by having these author bios and we have that full traceability anybody that wants to check if our content is not only you know effective and it's true they can go through onto the author bios and if they really wanted to they could then go and check out these authors on linkedin they could see their other publications see whether they see that they're real people that are active within the field emily i know you were talking the other day about although Life sciences is this massive growing field. It's really interconnected. So if somebody appears like they're an expert,
0: but they don't really exist, you'll quickly get found out.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: So, so as, a, as a quick takeaway for, for anyone watching, if if they're publishing regular content on their site and they're not uh, really highlighting who's written the scientists behind the research, the scientists behind the article, what, what should it look like? Should it just be, should it just talk about their experience? Should it link off to something else? Or is it just a case of this is doctor Bloody blah, blah, blah they have worked for this many years in this area, et cetera, et cetera? It's an interesting
2: point because for a lot of clients, if we're writing for them, um, occasionally you'll see on their site that content was written by members of our team. And that, that team, we're effectively an outsourced agency. So on the client sites, we're not demonstrating specific author expertise. But that's not, has never been seen as a red flag. It's something we have advised a lot of clients recently. Like we will publish content and have specific bios there. So people know that we are expert users and that we're not just some faceless agency that's generating meaningless content, that there is a lot of thought that goes into it. And a lot of, um, there's a strategy behind it rather than just generating meaningless content. It's something to consider to at least have, if you're generating content for your own website, at least just have an author bio so people know where you're coming from and what your reason for
0: writing in this field is. Yeah, all good points. So yeah, if, if that's what you're doing already, uh, something, if you're not doing it already, sorry, something to to sort of adopt as soon as possible, basically. Emma, if we just go back to the the hubs, I'm just trying to think for for clients who work in various fields within life sciences and they organize their own content on their own site. Do you recommend having a content hub for this area, another content hub for that area? Is that how you would organize it? if you're advising a client on this?
1: Yeah, I'd say organising it, having a clear layout so people can find things easier. I think having it all just dotted around, it depends on what kind of, it depends on the aim of the website. If your aim is to get, generate sales and RFQs and leads, I'd probably put all the equipment, all the downloadable things together. I think that would make sense to categorise it like that. If your main aim of the website is to generate traffic and just generate views, I think having the trending kind of things together that you know people are going to click on is important. So I think categorizing depends on the needs of your website is important. But I don't think cross... I'm going to use the word cross I don't know if that's the right term <laughs> to use, But between, say, like technology or different fields against each other doesn't necessarily work because readers are going to end up confused.
0: Yeah. Uh, and what you were saying just before about not throwing in irrelevant links to other blogs, it goes back to a little bit to that question we had before about... Putting in multimedia, if it's not really relevant to that article or the next yeah. step in that sort of series, then don't include it for the sake of it. It's always good to have other multimedia within an article. It's always great to have call to actions that can take them to another piece of content. But if it's not really linked, don't do it for the, for the sake of things.
1: Completely agree.
0: And I know we're talking mainly about generating traffic for our own, for your, for client sites and for how we did it for our site. But sorry, I know within the sort of video. That we include within articles. One of the other benefits is that video itself can rank on Google wherever we're hosting it, be it Vimeo, YouTube, things like that. So it can benefit sort of in terms of searching in both ways. And I think there's something else about Reels as well that you were talking to me about the other day.
3: So would you mention it's the video itself within linked within the article? And that video can itself rank if you then take that video, because you've already made a video complementing whatever you were saying. On the main let's call it a main article or the main website, then you can use that file and post it on other channels to attract people to that main article. So when I came to ASO Life Science, we had this great website with great content. Now, I was tasked with the producers, how do we get more people to see this content? So what do we do with this content to increase the amount of attention it's getting? So I thought well let's just go with people ah. Even if you're a researcher, even if you, if you go to the website just to see something about your research that you're interested about the rest of your time, you, where are you spending? You're spending on social media, you're spending on your emails, you're spending on your inbox. Why don't we take the really good stories and the main key points of these articles and just distribute them and just if a research is on Instagram and Reels, they're going to see content that is relevant for them. And then that content is then going to redirect them to the main site. So do not just have to rank for SEO. You have a great SEO. You have We have a great set of experts that are going to rank you in Google when people go intentionally to re- search for that. Why don't you just try and attract more attention where they already are not necessarily looking for it if your content is good, if your video is good, then they, cost, they will catch, it will catch their eye and then redirect it to the site. And it's just a, a great way to just expand a bit more your read.
2: Yeah, I, I was really interested in what you were saying there about the using the stories. And it is just finding unique ways of telling good stories because people aren't uniformly using Google to search anymore. I mean, people still use the term if you don't know something, Google it. But there's a lot of people now that don't use Google as their first protocol. As I said, I'll go to perplexity now as my first place to go whenever I'm researching an article. There are people who, if they're looking up DIY tips, they'll go to YouTube and obviously I'm I'm past the curve with TikTok, but a lot of people are using TikTok to search. People use Pinterest still to search for different things. And it's it's finding ways to utilize the, what are effectively different search engines that Yield different media in relation to different prompts, so having that approach that you had there, yeah, really beneficial.
1: Yeah, it also yields different audiences. I think, like, Sarah massively hits on the fact that like different age groups. I know Ben says he's too old for TikTok, it's not, <laughs> um, but it, it yields such different audiences. And if you're trying to tap into a field of, say, like, students and you're a client working in manufacturing space, some students do have purchasing power over some equipment choices in their laboratory. And you could be missing a big section of your audience if you're not tapping into different channels. I think, yeah, what Sarah says is really important from an audience perspective, as well as just generating and getting your brand visibility out there.
0: I think this is probably another webinar, but it goes into people's intent when they're searching for stuff, doesn't it? Lots of people will do their research on Google, but a lot of people do their research elsewhere and then come to Google when they want to look for for said product, which is why you need to have content for the various stages and the points. I know, Ben, that's something you do mm-hmm. with clients when you're doing an SEO strategy. We do have loads of SEO, additional SEO content, the previous webinars, uh, blogs written by Ben and uh, handbooks, loads and loads of stuff that can, can be helpful to people if they want to learn a bit more about this. I want to talk about tracking quickly before, before we finish up. So we're obviously tracking performance or website traffic is that the primary thing you're you're looking at emily from from the start and throughout is the amount of traffic coming to the site or are you go are you diving into individual pieces of content seeing which ones are doing well and then taking those sort of themes and and reusing those and redistributing them
1: yeah i think it's two, it's kind of a two-pronged approach i think like looking at overall general site traffic is really important because it does impact your reputation in the space It does show that actually your content is working like benaway says if it's going up and to the right, it's always a good thing, uh, which is completely true because it does mean it's working. But I think what you said that's important is looking at it on the individual content level. I mean, if you're publishing all this content and you just keep pushing about coming back full circle and seeing if it's actually working, if people are commenting on it, if people are resharing it. I think even people leaving a comment and resharing on their own personal platforms is a massive sense of achievement because it means they believe this information to be so trusted they're happy to share it with their peers maybe their work colleagues. I think that's something you can't mistake the value of, really. But I think, like, if you're looking at a piece of content and a piece of content is doing particularly well, look at what you did differently maybe in that piece. Maybe you use more keywords. Maybe you spent a bit more time optimising. It maybe included more visual aids in it. And kind of replicate it. Obviously, don't just keep rinse and repeating the same method over and over again. But take in board of, like, well, how did that do better than this piece of content? And really, like, focus on an individual level and a website general level, Yeah.
0: And getting the most out of every article you write, every blog you write. Sorry, I know you're big on repurposing for different things. Just as an example, what can someone do with an article?
3: They can turn it into a video. It's most articles have a a beginning, a middle, and an end. Turn it into a story. Tell the story of your science. Turn it into a video. Turn, then turn that video into a little snippet just to tease, just to get someone's attention. Distribute it on social media. Distribute it on any other short video platforms that you can think of, publish that video on other platforms, YouTube, Vimeo, anything. you have more than one article, create a collection, create an ebook. We've done this with lots of um, life science articles and lots of science topics in our website and then reuse that ebook on a certain topic and just what we've done in um, ESO life sciences is just any content that is tagged with let's say genetics or genomics and any content that the reader is interested in if that then it will show a little widget with saying well we have an ebook on genetics if you're interested in read more just click it download it it's free just read it at to at your own pace it's all that little things that can help both expand your visibility and also enhance the user experience which is both things that you want to be doing on your website
0: yeah so from from one article you can you can optimize that for seo rank highly in Google, which is the world's biggest search engine. You can create a video, get that on YouTube, which is the world's second biggest search engine, if, if I'm correct. You can create uh, little short snippet videos, publish them to your social channels, which have got billions of users. So just from that one re- initial article, and there's mo- more things you can do as well. You could create audio content, you could use the basis of that for a webinar. There is really no limit to how much you can repurpose the initial, the initial research. But yeah so i think i think we'll wrap things wrap things up there before before we finish just to say a big congratulations to emily ben Sara and the rest of the team the site has recently passed that one million annual page view so it's a great testament to all their hard work and if you are interested in finding out more about the the marketing opportunities within the platform uh, then do get in touch with us via the advertise button in the navigation bar of the site so if you found it today interesting please do share internally with with your colleagues if you had a key takeaway please share that on your social channels anything you can do to help us spread the word and then keep increasing our traffic we'd be very grateful i think we'll finish things up there sarah ben emily thank you very much thank you thank pleasure you. thank you everyone for, for tuning in and we'll uh, hopefully see you all again very soon and we wish you all a pleasant rest of the day